Welcome to episode 46 of History of the Marine Corps, Washington Burns. Our last episode covered troop movement throughout the United States. In Europe, Bonaparte was just exiled, and now the British had the additional troops needed to fight the United States. This episode gets into the British invasion of Washington. It's been over 200 years since this event, so I don't think it warrants a spoiler alert. But if you're not aware of the outcome of this battle, I'll pause so you can skip the next couple of seconds. The United States, specifically the Army, lost pretty bad during this engagement. However, the Marines performed heroically. Personally, I have mixed feelings about this encounter. It's something that's never spoken about in the Marine Corps. But the Marines' action during this engagement is the epitome of the Corps. Despite the outcome, The bravery and dedication these Marines had is something that should be remembered. Hopefully this episode will help with that. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. In August... 1814, both belligerents were getting prepared for an attack on Washington. While the British Army was marching to Bladensburg, the British Navy made its way up the river, guarding the Army's right flank. The United States sent troops to multiple locations and started to prepare defenses for the British. About two months before Washington was attacked, the Secretary of War sent Colonel Wadsworth, a couple of heavy artillery pieces, and 600 men to help Barney and the Marines at St. Leonard's Creek. When Wadsworth arrived, he met with the Commodore to discuss strategy. They invited Marine Captain Miller to discuss the plan. The three American leaders decided to stand up artillery on a nearby hill near the mouth of the creek. When the British entered the waterway, the flotilla and the battery's plan were to bombard the incoming enemy. Captain Miller moved from the west side of the creek with his artillery, ammunition, and about a hundred men and headed towards his defensive position on the hill. By dawn, the Americans were in place and Colonel Wadsworth fired the first shot at the blockading British ships. Immediately after this attack, Marines Captain Grayson, Lieutenant Richardson, and Lieutenant Nicole fired consistent and well-aimed rounds that were, quote, admirably served by the Marines and judiciously fought by their respective officers, unquote. But despite the well-aimed shots, the Marines ran out of cannonballs and the two British barges were preparing to land. Captain Miller quickly changed plans. He headed for the right of an open plain to more effectually attack the barges. But when Miller got into position, he discovered that a British frigate positioned itself to rake the open area his Marines would be exposed. The British naval reinforcement left the Marines with little option, and Miller moved to higher ground so he could restructure his strategy. Two British ships headed down the river. After a two-hour conflict, the Americans had five killed and five wounded, but none were Marines. The Commandant wrote to Captain Miller and said that he is, quote, glad to hear that no Marines were wounded in the late encounter. A few days after that engagement, 
Secretary of the Navy, William Jones, issues the following order to the Commandant. Quote, When the presence of the detachment of Marines under the command of Captain Miller shall no longer be necessary for the protection of the stores left at St. Leonard's Creek by the commander of the flotilla, you will order Captain Miller to proceed with this detachment to Nottingham and there remain until further orders unless in the interim the service of the detachment should be required in cooperation with the flotilla against any attempt the enemy may make between Benedict and Nottingham. Unquote. It didn't take long for the Commandant to decide that the stores no longer needed protection, and he sent Miller to Nottingham four days later. On August 18th, the British enter the Patuxent. Secretary of State Monroe notified the President, left for Benedict, and spent the next four days watching the enemy. General Winder wrote Jones on the 19th and asked, quote, would it not be expedient in our present destitute condition for military force to put the Marine Corps into service, or at all events to cause them to reinforce Fort Washington's at moment's notice, or to be applied as circumstances required, to any point of defense? Unquote. Jones agreed with this suggestion. The next day, Winder received orders to send the Marines to Fort Washington and defend the area. The Commandant ordered Miller's battalion to join Commodore Barry. The Secretary of War notified Winder, quote, the Marines are ordered to move, unquote. On the 22nd, Miller arrived. The newly formed force consisted of Captain Miller's Marines, General Winder's Army, and Barney's flotilla, set up about 15 miles from Washington and 12 miles from Nottingham. On August 23rd, Commodore Barney reported to the Secretary of Navy that the enemy was advancing on their position. He stated, Quote, the army was put under arms and our positions taken. My forces on the right, flanked by two battalions of the 36th and the 38th, where we remained some hours. The enemy did not make his appearance. Unquote. But as we discussed during our last episode, Americans had little intelligence, if any at all, and the enemy were on their way. Later that afternoon, Winder suggested that most of the troops retreat to Washington and set up defenses there. They left one 12-pounder to cover their retreat. As they entered Washington, Commodore Barney marched his men to the Marine barracks and stayed there for the night. That same night, the British rested for their impending attack. They camped about 12 miles from Washington at Melwood. In the early morning of the 24th, the British marched towards Washington. A little past 0400, the British reached a fork in the road. The northern route would take them to Bladensburg, while the western would take them directly towards Miller's Marines. In a move meant to distract the Americans, the British took the road headed towards the Marines, but changed direction mid-route and immediately headed towards Bladensburg, where an estimated 5,100 Americans were waiting, including 1,500 Marines and 350 sailors. Around 1000, Winder got word of the change in direction. He set off for Bladensburg, leaving Commodore Barney with his seamen and Marines in charge of the bridge. Today, this area is known as Barney Circle. The original plan was for the Marines and sailors to guard the bridge, but after a meeting with the Secretary of the Navy and the President, 
the Marines and sailors were ordered to draw their guns and head towards Bladensburg. Quote, Commodore Barney and his seamen and Marines, who were remaining in or near the barracks, was ordered to push on with all dispatch to Bladensburg, in order their anxiety stood anticipating. Unquote. Barney left the few men behind to destroy the bridge, if necessary, but the remaining force immediately made their way to Bladensburg. Commodore Barney was informed that the enemy was within a mile of the town, and he rushed into position. Barney and his men stopped about a mile from the Bladensburg stream and set up artillery. Two 18-pounders were set up on the road, forming his left line. The three 12-pounders were set up to the right, and sailors took up the artillerymen role and operated those guns. The Marines supported the artillery as infantry. A witness described the terrain the Marines would be facing. Quote, In front of his position, the road descends to a ravine, crossed by a small bridge about 500 yards distant. North of the bridge, the ravine is wide and shallow, the bottom of it producing grass and terminating in a somewhat abrupt acclivity or bluff about 150 yards from the road. Unquote. When the British finally reached Bladensburg, they found Winder and his militiamen waiting for them on surrounding hills. At the time, British estimates put American forces around eight to 9,000 strong, but the United States forces' real strength was closer to 6,000. Still, American troops outnumbered the British. Despite the size difference and the exhaustion from his troops from marching all day, the British immediately attacked. American forces weren't in the best shape either. Barney reported, quote, On our way, I was informed the enemy was within a mile of Bladensburg. We hurried on. The day was hot, and my men were much crippled from the severe marches we had experienced the days before, many of them being without shoes, which I had replaced that morning. I preceded the men, and when I arrived at the line which separates the district from Maryland, the battle began. I sent an officer back to hurry on my men. They came up on a trot. We took our position on the rising ground, put the pieces in a battery, posted the Marines under Captain Miller, and the flotilla men, who were to act as infantry under those officers, on my right, to support the pieces, and waited for the approach of the enemy. Unquote. Barney goes on to say, During this period, the engagement continued and the enemy advanced. Our own army is retreating before them, apparently in much disorder. Unquote. The British began their attack using Congreve rockets. British inventor Sir William Congreve invented this weapon in the early 1800s and used it a lot during the Napoleonic Wars. They were usually assigned to British Royal Marines, and by August 1814, three battalions of British Marines carried this weapon. As soon as the rockets launched, British Light Infantry, commanded by Colonel William Thornton, charged over the bridge and attacked the defending Americans. They were met with a bombardment of cannonballs and musket balls. The first attack failed and the British had to retreat across the bridge. But the enemy was persistent and tried a second attack. This time, they didn't let the incoming fire stop them and they made it over the bridge. President Madison was on that battlefield to witness this attack. 
There are rumors that Madison was almost captured, but they're not really based in fact, and they came from militiamen retreating. Not long after the start of this conflict, did most militiamen and soldiers flee the battleground. Most left, except for Barney and his 500 sailors and marines. Every one of them stood their ground. To the marines and sailors' flanks were militiamen from Maryland and Washington. This line was the last defense for Washington. Barney and his men were all that stood in the way of British soldiers burning the nation's capital. The British were relentless, and they continued to attack the remaining Americans. The militiamen were doing a phenomenal job holding their own. They were under heavy fire but still stood their ground. But Winder showed up during this engagement, and he ordered the militia to fall back. Without question, the militiamen followed his orders, and instead of falling back, they fled, leaving the marines and sailors alone to protect the nation's capital. These brave few continued to fight and attempted to hold off the British. Barney's horse was shot out from under him, yet he continued to command his men and defend against the British attack. Not too long after his horse was killed, Barney was shot in the thigh, unable to move. The British were closing in, and Barney finally gave the command to retreat. The Marines and sailors were hesitant to follow this order, but they fled to Washington. Marine Captain Miller was severely wounded during this battle. Marine Sergeant Holliday stood by his side when the rest of the defenses were retreating. He would not leave his fellow Marine, and both were taken as prisoners. Barney describes the scene, quote, At length, the enemy made his appearance on the main road, in force, and in front of my battery, and seeing us made a halt. I reserved our fire. In a few minutes, the enemy again advanced. When I ordered an 18-pounder to be fired, which completely cleared the road, shortly, a second and a third attempt was made by the enemy to come forward, but all were destroyed. They then crossed over into an open field and attempted to flank our right. They were met by three 12-pounders, the Marines under Captain Miller, and my men, acting as infantry, and again was totally cut up. By this time, not a vestige of the American army remained, except the body of five or six hundred posted on a height on my right, from which I expected much support from their fine situation. The enemy from this period never appeared in force in front of us. They pushed forward their sharpshooters. The enemy who had been kept in check by our fire for nearly half an hour now began to outflank us on the right. We had the whole army of the enemy to contend with. Our ammunition was expended. At this time, I received a severe wound in my thigh. Captain Miller was wounded as well. Unquote. Barney could not follow his retreating army, and he was left on the battlefield to face the British. His wounds were taken care of by a British surgeon, and he was set free on parole. General Ross also had Barney taken to his tavern in Bladensburg, where he rested. Barney later stated that he was treated, quote, as if I were a brother, unquote. Winder also reported to Armstrong that, quote, Captain Severe of the Marine Corps, who was wounded, not dangerously, in the neck by a musket ball, is now in Washington City, as is Captain Miller of the same corps, who received a very severe wound in the left arm, 
which it is now believed that he will not lose. Unquote. Without support from additional forces, the Marines were not able to hold off the advancing British. This battle was over relatively quickly. The British had 64 dead and 185 wounded. The Americans had 71 casualties, most of whom were part of Barney's crew. 22 Marines were part of that number. One corporal and seven privates were killed. Captain Miller and Severe, First Lieutenant Nicole, Sergeant Kelly, and nine other privates wounded. Secretary of War Armstrong provided little leadership during this fight. He was there, but spent most of his time watching and not working with his military commanders. This lack of direction is exactly what Armstrong did during Montreal, but instead of taking responsibility, the Secretary of War blamed military commanders in the area. He was doing the same here, and pointed his fingers at Winder and President Madison. After hearing about the British breaking through the defenses, the First Lady, Dolly Madison, left the White House and headed towards Lunden County. She stayed with the friend, but before she left, she took a portrait of George Washington and important documents that dated back to the American Revolution, including the Declaration of Independence and George Washington's correspondence. After the battle, General Ross rested the British Army for two hours before moving on to Washington. It was a seven-mile march, but the British would be able to make it the entire journey without any opposition from American forces. Coburn and Ross rode on top of white horses as they entered Washington. Night arrived before the British, but that didn't hide their grand entrance. As they marched into the nation's capital, 300 militiamen popped out from behind houses and opened fire on them. The volley hit Ross's horse and instantly killed it, but the British returned fire and the defending forces fled. Without a defending military, Washington was open for the taking. The British advanced and burned many of Washington's public buildings and even private houses. General Ross and Vice Admiral Coburn entered the White House that night. They took the wine made a toast, and burned down the White House. The British burned the Capitol Building, the Library of Congress, and the National Intelligencer Building. Quote, At 8 o'clock p.m., the day of the Battle of Bladensburg, the enemy, without further opposition, marched into Washington and, according to an official report, set fire to the President's place, today known as the White House. The Treasury and the war office. He set fire to many public buildings and destroyed the public stores at the Marine barracks. The next evening, after completing the destruction of the public buildings, the enemy withdrew on the 29th, returned unmolested to his shipping. Unquote. At the Washington Navy Yard, Commodore Tingey received orders from Secretary Jones to burn the fleet if the British were to take Washington. He reluctantly assigned Master Commandant John O. Creighton to fulfill the task, which he did, and he burned the fleet, which included a brand new frigate and a brand new sloop. Creighton dutifully completed his job and burnt every building except for one, the Marine Commandant's house. He also sent the Commandant and the Marine Band with important documents and other artifacts on one of the few remaining galleys. Their task was to protect this material, which is now stored in the Marine Archives. It is said, but not verified, 
that the British used the Commandant's red brick house as their headquarters. Coburn used a hitching post in front of the house to tie up his horse. The second floor of the house was used to hold American prisoners of war, captured at Bladensburg. The POWs wrote about their capture on the walls. They drew American flags and little cartoons about the British. It's reported that some of this artwork was around until 1907, but I couldn't find any more information on it. The Commandant's house was spared, but historians are conflicted as to why. Coburn originally ordered the destruction of the Commandant's and Captain Tingey's home. But the citizens protested about the burning of a private residence, and Coburn changed his mind and said, quote, I want to injure no citizen, and so your barracks may stand, unquote. Other reports claim that, quote, a delegation from the Navy Yard urged that if the Marine barracks on 8th Streets were set on fire, their dwellings would be jeopardized, and General Ross countermanded the order to destroy it, unquote. The battle was over, and the British were victorious, yet they continued to burn and pillage until morning. The single event that stopped the British was a brutal hurricane. The storm put out the fires and killed around 30 British soldiers as well. Call it fate or luck, mercy from a higher power or just a coincidence, whatever label you give it, that hurricane caused the British to retreat back to their ships as quickly as possible. They expected retaliation from the Americans, but nothing came. There were mixed feelings in Britain about this destruction. Some felt the British should continue raids to Baltimore and, quote, make the inhabitants feel a little more of the effects of your visit than what has been experienced at Washington, unquote. Now, this is only my opinion, but I think the British knew that they went too far. I believe this is the case because the British tried to justify their malicious attacks on Washington and they said it was done as vengeance for what the United States did in Canada. However, nothing the United States did in Canada ever came close to the destruction and damage in Washington. As a Marine and a podcast host talking about the history of the Marine Corps, I try my hardest not to be biased when talking about Marines. But, I think the Marine Corps is one of the best fighting forces the world has ever seen. And I feel I'm doing a pretty damn good job of proving that throughout this podcast. Even though Marines weren't successful in pushing back the British, they weren't the ones responsible for defending against their attack. Most of the army fled, and the Marines did a phenomenal job holding off the British for as long as possible. I'm not the only one who thinks this. Marines received recognition from both sides, British and the United States. Captain Miller was promoted to major by President Madison for his, quote, gallant conduct, unquote. Lieutenant Severe was promoted as well, quote, in reward and honor of the gallantry displayed, unquote. Theodore Roosevelt, historian and future president of the United States, stated this about the battle, quote, Marines did nobly, inflicting most of the loss the British suffered the fight was really between them and the 1,500 British regulars, unquote. Secretary of the Navy Jones said, quote, All that the limited means employed could possibly affect was accomplished by the gallantry, skill, and patriotism of those distinguished officers and the brave seamen, marines, and volunteers under their command, unquote. 
General Winder reported to the Secretary of War, quote, Captain Miller of the Marines was wounded in the arm fighting bravely, and that the concurrent testimony of all who observed the Blue Jackets and Marines does them the highest justice for their brave resistance and the destructive effect they produced on the enemy, unquote. General Wilkinson wrote that there was, quote, no doubt that in this affair, the enemy received the most essential injury from Commodore Barney with his gallant tars and Major Miller with his handful of Marines who bore the marks of their valor. Unquote. Cooper stated, quote, The people of the flotilla under the orders of Captain Barney and the Marines were justly applauded for their excellent conduct on this occasion. No troops could have stood better, and the fire of both artillery and musketry has been described as severe to the last degree. Captain Barney and Captain Miller of the Marine Corps, in particular, gained much additional reputation, and their conspicuous gallantry caused a deep and general regret that their efforts could not have been sustained by the rest of the army. Unquote. One of the most noteworthy comments from the American side came from an army officer. He said, quote, the only redeeming feature of this whole affair was the conduct of Captain Joshua Barney and his 400 sailors and marines. His men stood their ground till they were overwhelmed in front and enveloped in flank. But this time, the Navy was not strong enough to save the Army. Unquote. From the British side, an eyewitness stated, quote, that with the exception of a party of sailors and marines from the gunboats, under the command of Commodore Barney, no troops could behave worse than the army did. The skirmishers were driven in as soon as attacked. The first line gave way without offering the slightest resistance, and the left of the main body was broken within half an hour after it was seriously engaged. Of the sailors and marines, however, it would be an injustice not to speak in the terms their conduct merits. They were employed as gunners, and not only did they serve their guns with the quickness and precision which astonished their assailants, but they stood till some of them were actually bayoneted, with fuses in their hands. Nor was it till their leader was wounded and taken, and they saw themselves deserted on all sides by the soldiers that quitted the field. Unquote. Britain just won a significant victory. With most of the United States forces retreating, Washington captured, and many U.S. naval warships destroyed. Both sides planned out their next move. Thanks for listening. Join us next week as we discuss the end of the War of 1812. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.